As a child, I had a good friend whose family worshiped at another church. In fact, they belonged to a different Christian faith tradition. Occasionally, when we would spend the night together on a weekend, she would go with our family to Saturday evening or early Sunday morning mass. And then I would go with her family to their service later on Sunday morning. I remember one time in the car after mass, she asked why we received communion every week since they did not have this practice at her church. One of my parents responded, because it's who we are. Now, I'm not sure why I've remembered that conversation over the years or even if I've remembered the exact words, but I do think the words I do recall are really pretty accurate. Eucharist is who we are. We are people of thanksgiving for all God has done for us. We are people who, like the bread, are taken, blessed, broken, and shared. We are, like the grapes that become wine, sometimes crushed to become sustaining drink for others. We are the body of Christ in the world because we have consumed and become his body. We trust this to be true because of our experience for centuries of sharing this bread and wine that is his body and blood. We trust this to be true because of the promise of Christ to be with us always. And we trust this to be true because Jesus invited us to remember him in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. In this week's lesson, we've been spending time with the words of two evangelists, Luke and Paul, both of whom embrace a theology or a way of understanding God that is very Eucharistic. I hope you've discovered that perspective in your own study and group discussion. Let's talk a bit about what their Eucharistic theology looked like in the first century and how it came to be and why it matters now so many centuries later. First of all, let's consider what we can learn from the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke about the focus of the early Christian community that he addressed. That beautiful passage in Acts chapter 2, which was the focus of part of our commentary this week, has long been one of my favorites in the Acts. And perhaps that's because of how practical it is, telling his audience to be baptized, to receive the Spirit, and then describing life in the early Christian community. Now, how did this come about? Well, Peter had just delivered a soaring and somewhat piercing speech to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks. This festive holy time was traditionally held 50 days after Passover and was a time of presenting to God the summer wheat harvest, a time of thanksgiving for what God had given them even in this very arid land. That's why Jews from many places who spoke in various languages were in Jerusalem to begin with. Peter and the eleven took advantage of this time. They drew upon that recently received outpouring of the Holy Spirit and took to the streets to give witness to Jesus. Peter recounted not just the most recent events of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, but he also provided the context within Judaism for understanding Jesus' identity. He was the one they had been expecting, sent by God, and even testified about from as early as King David. He was Lord and Messiah, but so few of his brothers and sisters in Judaism had recognized him. Peter wanted his listeners to have an aha moment of recognition. He wanted them to be cut to the heart so that they would hear the message of repentance and respond. We're told that 3,000 persons were added that day through baptism. In other words, people responded beyond what could have been imagined. Now, when Luke goes on to describe the believing community in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, 
What grabs my attention is the idyllic way it is portrayed. Maybe you wonder if it was ever truly that way or how long before it began to be picked apart by rivalries or misunderstandings. But here's what I do know. The way Luke describes the life of the believers in Jerusalem is meant to demonstrate for his listeners then and us now that communal life is more than just feeling good about each other. It involves learning. Thus, there's the reference to the teaching of the apostles. It involves prayer, wonders, and signs. It involves sharing goods in common so that the needs of all were met. It involves temple worship and therefore a continuing connection with their Jewish community of origin. It involves sharing meals together. And it involves breaking bread, a clear reference to the sharing that we know as Eucharist. I wonder if we can fully appreciate how exciting and dangerous all of it must have felt then, especially continuing to go to the temple for prayer and yet adding to that monumental experience of reverencing God's presence there, adding a new and arguably more intimate way of experiencing God's dwelling among them. Tension surely arose as their fellow Jews heard what they were doing and must have concluded that it was kind of an affront to God who promised to reside with them. All of this activity in their homes surely unearthed a larger concern about the status of the temple in the plan of God, which, by the way, had so much bearing on their understanding of God's covenant and presence among them. You may recall that when David wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem to house the Ark of the Covenant, to in some ways contain the presence of God who had accompanied them in their journey to the promised land, the divine answer was no. Thus says the Lord, we read in Second Samuel, is it you who would build me a house to dwell in? I have never dwelt in a house from the day I brought you up from Egypt to this day. It was David's son Solomon who would build the mighty temple as the dwelling place of the presence of God. As to this house we read, you are building. If you walk in my statutes, carry out my ordinances, and observe all my commands, walking in them, I will fulfill toward you my word, which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell in the midst of the Israelites and will not forsake my people Israel. Now, if we were to survey the words of Israel's prophets, we would find plenty of evidence that in some periods of time, God's people had a false sense of security associated with the temple, assuming that God's promised presence would guard them from all harm, assuming that merely offering the prescribed sacrifice there would kind of seal the deal. The prophets reminded them that God's presence could not be controlled. It could not be contained. Isaiah proclaimed, Thus says the Lord, The heavens are my throne, the earth my footstool. What house can you build for me? Where is the place of my rest? Well, in Luke's gospel then, when Jesus finally made his way into Jerusalem, he immediately emptied the temple area of those who treated it only as a place for buying and selling, symbolically returning it to that house of prayer. A bit later, he laments the coming destruction of the temple. While some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, he, that would be Jesus, said, All that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Now, the case could be made that in Jesus, the presence of God is immediate, and that in the sharing of Eucharist, the breaking of bread, the resurrected Jesus remained with the early community 
and remains with us still. The temple made of stone could not deliver what God desired for his people, to dwell with them intimately. Paul would later address the citizens in Athens who worshipped many gods in various temples. He said, the God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands. Paul would also speak in 2 Corinthians of the human person as an earthen vessel which carries the treasure of God's glory. By the time Luke wrote his gospel and his second volume, The Acts of the Apostles, the church was being established across the land north of the Mediterranean, through Asia Minor and into the region we now know as Europe. Paul, whose letters help us to hear his voice, was traveling the region either helping to establish churches or hoping to build on the Christian faith already planted there. From both of these sources, we can glean much about what the early church valued, how they understood Jesus and his message, and how they began to shape community life. The scene in the second chapter of Acts helps us to realize the importance the church originally attached to its Jewish roots. Worship in the temple was not immediately discontinued, but began to be overshadowed by what happened in the homes of those who profess faith in Jesus. The home became the gathering place of the early church, partly because in Judaism, the home was the place where the family celebrated Sabbath and shared faith stories and prayed together, but partly because of the central importance of hospitality and sharing a meal in the culture of that time and in the example of Jesus and his followers. Eugene Laverdier, in his Acts commentary entitled Breaking of the Bread, says it this way, as a place of hospitality and evangelization, the home was a place of ministry, or diaconia, much of which took place at the table. In this, the community in Jerusalem continued in the footsteps of Jesus, whose ministry unfolded in settings of hospitality. Whether as a guest or as the host, Jesus did much of his teaching at the meals he took with his disciples and many others. If the home was a place of hospitality, the church was a community of hospitality, providing a home for the homeless and a meal for the hungry. The meal included the teaching of the apostles, inviting guests to join in the common union of faith. It also included the breaking of the bread, inviting the guests to go forth and extend Christian hospitality to others. Having a sense of the history of how the Eucharist developed and its place in the homes of the earliest generations is an important part of our growth and learning. I'd say too, though, that it reminds us of the powerful truth that the church was profoundly shaped around what Vatican II would later refer to as the table of the Word of God and the body of Christ. As an example, and a profound one, it became clear quite early on that the table of fellowship had to extend beyond Judaism. The home had to widen its walls, so to speak, to make room for more at the table. As the disciples went out from Jerusalem into the larger world of the Roman Empire, the message of Christ began to attract Gentiles and draw them into a relationship that demanded a shared Eucharist. The story of Peter and the conversion of the household of Cornelius, the events in Antioch where large numbers were responding to Christ, bringing Barnabas and Paul there to instruct them, and even the conflict that emerged between Peter and Paul about the implications of table fellowship. All of these events opened the church to understand itself 
and its celebration of Christ's presence in Eucharist in challenging ways. And without question, the most challenging self-understanding revolved around who was in and who was out, who was welcome at the table and who was not. Emerging from within the covenant community of Judaism, it's little wonder that there was resistance to accepting non-Jews within the communities of those who followed Jesus. The covenant that God entered into with Israel was serious business. It bound them to one another and to the God who was author of their liberation and their identity and the giver of their land. Obedience to the law of Moses was not something that could just easily be swept away. The law, after all, created among the Jews a deep sense of awe in the presence of God and a deep bond with one another. The Jews who accepted Jesus would have taken that quite seriously. Accepting Gentiles at the table for meals and the sharing of Eucharist implied that they were willing to bypass what they had always been taught and believed about their unique relationship with God. However, God was doing something new, and they recognized this fresh direction in those places where Christianity was blossoming, places like Caesarea and Antioch. Both accounts of what we refer to as the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and in the second chapter of Galatians, while differing in details, do agree that some way had to be opened for the Gentiles. The practical result was that table fellowship was a necessary part of this new way of responding to God in Christ. Eucharist could not possibly be restricted to only the Jewish followers of Jesus. It would demean the very nature of this divine gift where God shares his very self with his people. It would also demean the community itself, dividing it along cultural lines that Paul would later in Galatians say do not exist in the body of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free person. There is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is this grace-filled sensibility that makes Peter's seeming hypocrisy so outrageous to Paul in the Galatians account that you studied in this lesson. It seems that Peter was eating with Gentiles until or unless the more Jewish of Jesus' followers were around. And then Peter separated himself from the Gentile believers, not wanting to offend those who had come from Jerusalem. You see, even within the community of those who followed Jesus, even after the decision to accept Gentiles, it took quite some time to fully accept people who were different. Of course, there are some obvious connections that we can make. We might ask ourselves if our table fellowship is truly open. I'm talking about really examining how we offer hospitality even among those who are Catholics. I can imagine that you may have visited churches where there is a sense of sameness, little variety in the assembly, all seemingly pretty much from the same social class or educational background or even race. And I can also imagine that you have seen and felt the difference when you worship in a parish community that is alive in its diversity, pews that are filled with people of many backgrounds, gifts that are appreciated in many forms. The hospitality demanded by sharing in the Eucharist urges us to make an extra effort to welcome people in our parishes who are different in some way. Could they be immigrants? Could they be of another racial or ethnic background than usually populates our pews? Could they be younger than the norm or older? That diversity is challenging to be sure, but also essential and encouraging. 
It reminds us that in the breaking of bread, we encounter Jesus. And in the breaking open of our lives, we discover Jesus there as well. And so we can see why Paul would also instruct the Corinthian Christian community to do some self-examination. Allowing some in the community to receive more at the mill than others, or to sit in places of honor while others were neglected and relegated elsewhere. That was divisive and counter to the message of sharing in the Eucharist. One of the hallmarks of sacramental teaching in our tradition is that we understand that a sacrament does two things. It expresses what we believe, and it also brings about what we desire. That theology was not created out of whole cloth, but springs from that lived experience of the church gathered from our earliest periods. Sharing in the Eucharist expresses what we believe and know to be true, that Christ's body and blood is offered to us in the bread and wine, uniting us with him. Sharing in the Eucharist also expresses what we desire, a greater sense of and appreciation for Jesus's real presence and a deepening unity with him and one another. In the first 300 or so years of the church, it was the Eucharist and the teachings about Jesus that united this young community of Christ followers. They worshiped originally in their homes, as we've been discussing. After the decision around the year 49 or 50 to welcome non-Jews, and then the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in the year 70, the divide between the more traditional sects within Judaism and those who followed Jesus was quite wide, and separation between Jews and Christians became complete. The home setting for the church was a natural necessity. Added to this, Christians soon became the scapegoat for what ailed the Roman Empire during the reign of the Emperor Nero and those who succeeded him. As imperial power and emperor worship grew, the state persecution of Christians expanded. It was then imperative that their worship continue in homes, now for the added need of safety. It's not hard to imagine that the broken body and shed blood of Jesus served to fill the early believers with the courage that they needed in an era that often demanded their own blood be shed for their faith. It was not until the early fourth century that Christianity was accepted among the tolerated religions of the empire, and only after that time that public worship was allowed. By then, the prominence of sharing in Eucharist was firmly established as the distinctive mark of Christian worship and identity. I am so very grateful to see within the sacred scriptures the priority given to gathering in a meal where Jesus promised to be present. So grateful to have some sense of how this way of sharing in the life of Christ developed and still is able to grab our attention. This most basic and simple of gestures, breaking bread together, has the power to draw us into the mystery of God's love for us.